You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. So when Joe asked me, um, or mentioned this topic to me, I don't know, six weeks ago or so, I thought of a lot of really good ideas. Of book. He said, just come and talk about your favorite Christian, uh, your favorite piece of Christian literature that's shaped your life and that really represents what Christian literature is. And so I thought of a lot of kind of famous examples, um, like uh, there's, so, there's so much that we could turn to. Uh, especially like classic works of literature that people don't normally think of as Christian, but which are actually really steeped in the Christian tradition and in the Bible, like Mark Twain, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Anyone read this book? Seriously? Come on, people. You've got to read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Now, now, are you just lying, or are you, you really have read it? Okay. Um, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn is a book that no one really reads as a Christian novel, and Mark Twain... Uh, most, for the most part, would not have identified himself as a Christian, but it's really a book that is trying to call America back to um, a kind of Christian thinking about race, about children, about how we treat one another, about war. Um, it's really a, a book of, filled with con- biblical kind of conviction, and it can, be def- it can be read that way in a really rich way. Um, Moby Dick, anyone ever heard of Moby Dick? The great American novel. Anyone read Moby Dick? All right, that's a good show of hands. The Great American Novel, written in 18, in eight, uh, published in about 1850, um, and like most works of great literature, was a total failure in its day, and Melville was depressed and poor and had a really rough life, and then later on it became celebrated as this masterwork, which it really is. It is a book that, again, is not normally read as a Christian novel. Melville definitely had um, problems with Christianity as he knew it in his day and age, um, but it also is a book that's, that's really steeped in kind of biblical, biblical conviction. Um, in fact, it's a book that really wants to be like a Bible. Melville tries out different kinds of literature, the way the Bible does. If you've ever noticed, there's poetry in the Bible, there's history, right? There's letter writing. Um, there's even kind of plays, like the book of Job. It's kind of like an epic play. It's written in the form of an epic play. Um, and Melville's doing all these things, thinking of him, think, trying to like insert this story, this great story he's telling, into sort of a, a sort of a biblical mode. So we could have talked about that. Um, and then there's, you know, uh, in the 20th century, probably one of the, the great writers in the 20th century, maybe the greatest American short story writer of all time, is a woman named Flannery O'Connor. Anyone know Flannery O'Connor? She's a, she wrote um, a short story called A Good Man Is Hard to Find, and one called Good Country People. These are very famous. If you, ever, if you were an English major, you would read most of her work. Um, and again, she is one of the great uh, American writers. She died in the 19, early 1960s, um, and she was a Catholic. Um, and her work, I mean, there's no question that it's Christian. It just sort of drips with, uh, with Christian faith, but with a really strange and kind of perplexing and funny and powerful uh, take on Christian faith, and she's one of my favorite writers. We could have looked at her. In our own day and age, there happens to be, and I know that a lot of people don't realize this, but there are great Christian writers working today that you won't find in your Christian bookstore or in your church bookstore, but that are just kind of writing in the public square. Um, and who's, you know, they don't write for the Christian marketplace, but they write books that are, again, deeply Christian. Marilyn Robinson is probably the most important one of our time. She won the Pulitzer uh, five or six years ago for a book, for a book called Gilead, um, which is this amazing story of a 70-year-old Lutheran pastor writing a letter to his son. Um, and uh, again, won the Pulitzer. And it's, 
it's the kind of thing that when you get into it, you'd be surprised at how much it echoes the things that that we all believe as a community. There's a lot of stuff we could turn to. Um, But I decided instead to turn to an obscure, complicated, almost inscrutable 19th century Jesuit poet whose poems upon first reading will almost always either confuse you or bore you to tears. And I take it, I guess, as a big risk and challenge to turn to him this morning and convince you that he's worth your while. I think he very much is worth your while. As Joe mentioned, I was an English major as an undergraduate. I studied literature in grad school. um, And I taught literature at a couple of different colleges. And even I would typically dread poetry day in my classes. I'm not a big poetry reader these days. I mean, I probably read more than the average person, but that's not very much because the average person reads zero, and maybe I read one or two every now and then, except for Hopkins. Hopkins is the, is, uh, the point of difference for me. Um, but anyway, I understand fear people have of poetry and how people dread studying poetry, and so I apologize for what I'm about to do to you this morning, but I hope it proves worth it. I think it will. I thought about titling this talk, How Poetry Saved My Life, uh, but that would seem, I think, a little too cheesy and overblown, but it's almost true or at least it's, it's, like a, it's a version of the truth of what happened to me with regard to, um, with regard to Hopkins. Um, so about eight years ago, I'm living in Boston. I'm going to grad school at Boston University. I'm a f- couple years into my coursework. At Boston University, in addition to having an English department and a, um, you know, a math department and a film department and a history department and so on, it has this thing that's called the University Professors Department, which is this highfalutin really exclusive department at BU that is really just for famous, famous scholars. It's filled with Nobel Prize winners. It's a very intimidating hall to walk past because all these, again, luminaries line these halls. Um, and uh, in the world of scholarship, the, the names on the doors and the, the nameplates on the doors in that, in that department are, they make you shudder uh, because they all echo sort of greatness, scholarly greatness. And, um, and so one of the things you get to do if you're at school there is try to get into some of these classes um, that really are kind of designed for elite kids who are like the top of the top of the 1% get to take classes with these guys their whole four years. But as a grad student, you can kind of sneak into some of these things. And I was able to do that um, a time or two. And when, from the time I first arrived at BU, I kept being told, you have to take a class with Jeffrey Hill. Jeffrey Hill is a famous poet. He's one of the most famous poets in the world today. I had never heard of him because, again, I'm not that into poetry. And I'm, I'm, I imagine no one here has ever heard of him. Anyone ever heard of him? He's a, really, he's a really big dude. He's been writing poetry for about 60 years. And his poetry has been famous for um, about that long. Um, he had a lot of early success, like in his 20s, as a poet. Right now, he's the professor of poetry at Oxford, which is a title they've only given to a few people. Um, in Oxford's history. And it was awarded to Jeffrey Hill a couple years ago. So he's actually not in Boston right now. He's at Oxford, which is, I don't know, maybe it's a three-year stint as their professor of poetry. So he's a really big deal. He'll probably win the Nobel. He could easily win the Nobel Prize in literature someday before he dies. But he's going to die. And he's going to die soon. He's very old. And so when I was at BU, I was told, you've got to take a class with Jeffrey Hill before he dies because he's going to die any moment. And he was very sick at the time, and he's gotten a little better since then. But in any event, he's feeble and frail. And so I decided, all right, after I had been there two or three years, I'm going to take a class with Jeffrey Hill just because he's Jeffrey Hill, and I hear he's important. Um, and uh, he was teaching that semester a seminar, uh, which is a, a, a seminar in grad school. 
if you don't know, is a sort of a deep semester-long study of one person, um, one person's work. It could be just one book. It's a very focused kind of study. And the seminar that Hill was offering that semester was on Gerard Manley Hopkins, a poet I had never heard of. I picked up one of his poems to try to decide if I should take the class. And, you know, it's like... Um, She marked where I and Fabian met. She loves his face. She knows the spot. For Fabian, that suspects her not. I see her writhing fingers tear. I mean, I just didn't understand a word of it. So I was really not looking forward to doing this. But again, everyone's telling me, you've got to take a class with Jeffrey Hill. It'll blow your mind. He's really important. And you will want to have studied with him. So now I am um, you know, taking a class by someone I've never heard of about a poet that I've never heard of and pretty sure that I'm not going to like. Um, but I did it anyway. And so... Um, I sign up for this class on the first day. I go in and I sit down. And Jeffrey Hill's not there. It takes him a while to show up. Um, he's a handful of minutes late. And he finally shuffles in. And we're in this beautiful kind of oak-lined room, the best room at BU for taking these kinds of classes. A, a long sort of uh, oak table in the middle, oak-lined walls with all these old books, and it overlooks the Charles River, which is this beautiful river where Harvard and MIT and BU all have their schools, and you just feel like, oh, like the light of academic heaven is shining on you. Um, and so we're all kind of geared up for this, and Jeffrey Hill shuffles in, and he like, literally is like walking like this as the door opens, and he doesn't say anything to us, doesn't say hello, doesn't greet the class, just goes behind the podium picks up an old leather-bound book that's tattered and torn, opens it, and looks at us. Doesn't look, I'm going to look at the book because I don't know this poem. But he kind of holds the book for a moment, looks at the pages, and then looks up at us. And he goes, The Wreck of the Deutschland, December 6, 7, 1875, to the happy memory of five Franciscan nuns, exiles by the Falk laws, drowned between midnight and morning of December 7. Part the first. Thou mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread, world's strands, sway of the sea. And he reads, he doesn't read, he recites this poem, again, holding the book in front of him but not looking at the pages. It goes on for many pages. It takes 20, 25 minutes to recite the whole thing. He does it all from memory. And it's complicated. I mean, you can hear from those three lines that I read. Like, it's, it's, it, the words are strange and they're put together in a strange way. And he does this, and we're all just sitting there listening to him, not understanding a word, but kind of amazed. It's kind of an amazing thing to see. And then he finishes the last line, Our hearts, charities, hearths, fire, our thoughts, chivalries, throngs, Lord. He finishes and kind of looks down, looks around at us, <clears throat> clears his throat, turns the pages back, and starts again. And... And these are like three-hour classes, by the way, so we have time for him to, to be this slow about his business. Um, they really, I think they were three and a half hours. And so, so you're not really wanting him to get to the point, but you, are, you know you have plenty of time. But in any event, he took a long time. He took 40, 45 minutes. First day of class, didn't introduce himself, didn't say hello, just read this poem. And it was kind of an awe-inspiring um, experience. And he did, this is the way he taught a lot of the class. He would come in, he wouldn't say much to us. He would open his book, not look at the page, and then recite these things. Sometimes he would mess up a line, and he would go, oh, forgive me, Gerard. And then he'd try again and continue. And there was something about 
that and the way that he read that just turned me on. I mean, it was just like he had passion for this poet. He was clearly deeply steeped in him, had spent his life studying him. And I just thought it was amazing. I still didn't really understand a word of it and didn't really understand what we were up to. And he didn't just recite poetry. We, we would have discussions about it. Um, one of the main things he would make us do is read the literature that Gerard Manley Hopkins was reading in the, 18, in the 1800s. Um, Hopkins journaled a lot, so we know what all his favorite books were. He was writing to his friends about his favorite books, and so we read all that stuff, read the news of his day. He was often responding to the news. That long 20-minute poem, The Wreck of the Deutschland, is about uh, a ship called the Deutschland that crashed, and it was a big travesty, kind of like the Titanic, and five Franciscan nuns died on it, and they were off to... They actually, I think, were trying to escape religious tyranny, and so it was this very tragic thing that they died while they were trying to escape. And so... Um, in any event, we read the history of the time and, and, and read a lot of Hopkins. And again, we did talk about it with, with him, but mostly we just listened, you know, as he read this guy again and again. And I think his belief was that slowly but surely, this stuff will wake you up. This stuff will come alive to you and you'll, it'll make sense to you in time. And he was right. Um, that took a while for me in that class, but I did begin to learn as we got into it that Hopkins is famous for good reason. I mean, he's famous as, among poets today. His fame is growing. He, he didn't publish much during his life um, uh, for a variety of reasons I'll explain in a moment. But uh, his fame is growing in part because he was a very complex poet. He created something called sprung rhythm, which is a certain kind of meter. Meter is the way you read poetry, like the stress you place on different words. So like a famous Shakespeare poem, like, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? that are more lovely and more temperate, has a very kind of natural rhythm. Every other syllable is stressed, which is kind of the way that we talk when we're talking in a formal way. Hopkins created something called sprung rhythm where the stresses are very kind of hard. You'll see when you look at the poems in front of you that there's stresses placed in certain syllables where you might not normally place them. And he did that for kind of complex reasons of meaning that he was trying um, to, um, uh, to stress. But again, he wasn't very famous in his day. This, uh, the, he burned a lot of his poetry. He felt very guilty about writing poetry. He was a priest, a Jesuit priest. He wasn't sure if poetry, for a lot of his life, he wasn't sure if poetry was something worth spending his time on or not. He was very guilt-stricken about it. And again, didn't publish much during his lifetime. It wasn't until after he died that his stuff began to, to be published. And even then, he didn't get famous. I mean, cycles of fame in literature are different than they are in like, the normal world. Like Katy Perry, like, where did she come from? And she'll be gone soon, right? At least in terms of the public scene. But in poetry, it takes maybe 75 years. <laughs> like, the cycle of fame is much, much longer, right? And he's, Hopkins is in the, the midst of one of those right now. Okay, so who was he? Um, uh, he Hopkins was um, basically a teacher. Um, he was a, a professor at a boys' school in Ireland much of his life. He was from Scotland and England, um, but um, he, uh, he found his way to this um, kind of small Irish school where he taught boys all his life and hated it. He hated grading papers, and he had to grade a lot of papers. And he complains in his letters a lot about how awful it is to grade papers. He was a, kind of a depressive and weird character, um, prone to flights of fancy. He was also short. He was about 5'2". Um, but prone to flights of fancy. He felt, for instance, that people drank too much. Not alcohol, but just drank too much liquid. And he, to try to prove this, he didn't tried to not drink for like a week or two and his turn, tongue turned black and he passed out 
Um, and he would do really weird things like this. He was, people today think he probably was bipolar or schizophrenic. Like he had some, some mental issues um, for sure. And as I said, he, he was conflicted about the fact that he loved and wanted to write poetry. He wasn't sure if God wanted him to do that or not. And he questioned everything about God, as we'll see in a moment in his poems. But he mostly questioned himself sort of before God. Am I okay? Like, as a lot of us do. Um, and he felt guilty about a lot of things. He, as I said before, he burned a lot of his poems. Um, we have them because he sent them to friends when they were done. And then later on, he would burn his, kind of, his manuscripts of them. But his friends fortunately kept them, so we're able to have them today. Um, but uh, he, he ended his life, his, la- his famous last words were, I am so happy, I am so happy, I loved my life. He seems to have discovered something um, near the end um, that made it all make sense for him. He died young, about 45 years old. Um, but hearing this story and learning about Hopkins, um, I tell you all this to tell you why I got turned on by him. And it's mostly because I related to this. I was in a very dark period of my life when I took this class. As I... I have said in this context and at the mill a month or two ago, I had become a Christian at this church when I was 19, and I had, a couple years later, begun to question everything I believed. My life had been changed for the good, no doubt about it, um, by converting to Christianity and believing in Jesus, but I had become very confused about what I believed, questioned everything. And when I went to graduate school, I, I, I expected that I wouldn't be a Christian very much longer. It just did, intellectually didn't make sense to me, and I was ready to abandon faith. I was trying to figure out how to tell my family, look, I'm never going to believe this, and I need to move on. And it was hard to think through those things, and it was a dark, again, a dark period um, for me. And that's where I was that day that um, Jeffrey Hill walked in and began to read these poems. And I began to see myself in his poetry. He has this poem called to seem the stranger. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it begins, to seem the stranger lies my lot, my life among strangers. Father and mother dear, brothers and sisters are in Christ, not near, and he my peace, my parting, sword and strife. And this poem describes how he's separated from everyone. Whether he's near them or close to them, he feels separated from them. He feels like an alien in the world. And that is how I have felt. And especially at that time was how I, how I felt um, in my life. Just separate, lonely, alien-like. And I saw myself in this guy's poetry. I felt like he was wrestling through the same things that I was wrestling with. There's another poem that goes, I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day, which is to say I wake up and it's still dark. It's actually morning in the poem. The light is out, but I feel the dark still. What hours, oh, what black hours we have spent this night. What sights you heart saw, ways you went and more must, and yet longer lights delay. He's describing insomnia, which I struggled with. For years and years and years, I was up until 5 a.m. a lot of nights, and that which, comp- which compounded my journey through doubt, you know, and anxiety, because you can't sleep, you can't think straight. Um, and so I related to this stuff. Does anyone know, anyone ever experienced despair? You know what despair feels like? We talk about despair today as if, do you, do you, can you tell me what despair means? Complete, that's a great definition, complete and utter hopelessness. Complete and utter hopelessness. And for Hopkins, despair was not just a feeling 
of complete and utter helplessness. It was an embrace of complete and utter helplessness. I'm, this is something that defines who I am. For, for especially for Jesuit theology, which is a um, kind of a, strand, a stream of Catholic theology, in the 19th century, there was a lot of discussion about despair. To despair meant to choose that complete and utter helplessness as the only possible outcome for your life. It meant to choose hell. And a lot of Hopkins' poetry is about warring against despair, you know, and, and almost going there, but not quite, trying to hold on to hope. Um, one day, Professor Hill came in, and he delivered a lecture to us about language and about how all language is fallen, how, lang- how, how language is part of creation, linguistics, the communication, is part of creation. And in his reading of Genesis 3, and I could show you this, you would see it immediately if I kind of explained this theory and then we read Genesis 3 together. Language is part of what the Bible sees as the fallen world. Our, our, our language has fallen just like the rest of creation has fallen um, after the events described uh, or memorialized in Genesis 3. Um, and this is what Hopkins believed. He also believed, though, that Jesus had come and that in Christ, God had launched a grand renewal project, right? And this is what we all believe, that in Jesus, there's a pivot in history and that everything after Jesus is the beginning of this march toward the new kingdom. The new kingdom is coming. It's not yet here completely, but it's coming, right? It's here and yet not here. And we are kind of in that middle period where the grand renewal project has begun, has been launched, and our job as believers is to help with that project, is to bring the kingdom into being, to bring it into full completion, where eventually, as at the end of Revelation, heaven and earth will merge, and God's renewal of the world will be complete. But in the meantime, we can bring God's mercy and usher in the kingdom now, through acts of kindness, through acts of generosity, of mercy, of selflessness, of love, right? This is the message of the gospel. Hawkins believed, on his best days, that, that um, addressing the fallenness of language could be part of that renewal project. So art, this kind of art, linguistic art, has potentially deep, heavenly value. It could be God, could part of God's kingdom coming to earth. The, art, the poet, and the, and the hours and hours and hours it would take to write one of these poems, is attempting to see God's kingdom come through um, putting this line next to this line, choosing just the right word, and delivering this to someone, and charging this poetry with some kind of spiritual insight. Um, that, for Hopkins, was like an act of mercy, an act of grace. Um, letting God's light shine forth uh, through, through language and thereby restoring a piece of the fallen creation. Um, so this stuff just woke me up. It, I was on this very dark path. I discovered a poet who was also on a very dark path and he began to sort of rethink the world through grace, through believing in grace and God's grace coming. And even, in, even through something as simple, it's not simple at all, but something that seems maybe sort of banal, as, as writing lines of poetry. Um, and, you know, Hopkins saw all this. He thought poets could reveal moments of grace, indications of God's m- uh, mercy through artistic uses of language. And he was right. I mean, there, had, there, there has been lasting significance to the work that he did. Hopkins is everywhere now. And if, especially if you're, 
if you are in the sort of world of literature, you see him everywhere these days. Everyone's reading him, talking about him, and trying to, to sort of work like him. He's, he comes up all, there's a Hopkins sort of heyday happening. He comes up everywhere. Um, I know that a week or two ago, um, the Grothys talked to you about The Pastor by Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson is a huge Gerard Nunley Hopkins fan. And he, he has a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Has anyone heard of this book? Um, by Eugene Peterson. It's a work of, it's, it's called, it's a work of uh, spiritual theology. Eugene Peterson, in case you don't know, is the man who wrote the Message Bible um, and um, is this great kind of pastor and thinker figure. Anyway, his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, um, is, is the beginning of a five-book volume of uh, spiritual theology that is going to be kind of his most lasting significance um, as a writer uh, as he ends his life. And um, anyway, so Peterson is one, one of many examples of great writers and thinkers who are returning to Hopkins and finding stuff of extreme importance there. Um, okay, so I think what we should do is read Peterson's favorite Hopkins poem, which you have in front of you. By the way, it says three poems by Gerard Money Hopkins. You only have two on the front, but there's one on the back as well. Um, so there really are three on that piece of paper. Um, but let's read one to give you kind of a sense of what it's like to read Hopkins and what he sounds like. And then I'm going to let you do one on your own, and we'll talk about it. And then we'll close in prayer. Um, okay. Those, the, I think the one on the bottom of the front page is As Kingfishers Catch Fire. And we're going we're gonna to read that one first. Do we go until 10.20 or 10.30? 10.30, okay. Okay. So again, there's all kinds of stuff that I could say to set you up to understand this. Um, and, you know, we just don't have time to do that. And plus, I'll be a little bit like Professor Hill and just begin reading. And, and you know, it's, it, his poems feel inscrutable at first. That's part of the journey of reading a lot of poetry, uh, but especially Hopkins, is giving it the time it takes, reading it 20 or 30 times and like a light bulb comes on and your mind will be blown. We, we don't have time to do all that this morning, so... Um, we'll get done what we can, and hopefully you'll get a sense of the way this guy works. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being, indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells. Crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more. The just man, justices, keeps grace. That keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs, and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Does that make sense? <laughs> Let's look at the first stanza really quickly. What's he doing? Imagine a speaker. Every poem has a speaker behind it. Right, this is a voice of a, of a person in particular. Let's call it a man. You could think of Hopkins. Poets often don't want you to think of themselves as, their own, as the narrators of their poetry. 
But in any event, let's think of a young man as the speaker of this poem. What's he doing in the first stanza? Anyone have a clue? What's he doing? Imagine what he's doing that would make him think these thoughts and write these things. First of all, what's a kingfisher? Does anyone know what a kingfisher is? Yeah, it's a bird. It's a beautiful bird. Has anyone ever seen a kingfisher take off from a branch? It's very colorful. It's like a burst, like a flame burst. It catches fire. Same with dragonflies. Dragonflies look like a flame is around them, you know, given the right light. Hopkins is walking in the woods. He's basically on a hike. And he's watching nature very, very closely. Have you ever gone on a hike and looked very closely at your surroundings? I did this with my kids yesterday. We hiked up Mount Hermon. And we took time. I've been so busy lately. I've been a wreck of a person the last couple months. Working morning and night and traveling. And yesterday we hiked up Mount Hermon. I have a nine-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. And a wife and a dog. And all of us went up Mount Hermon together. And we took our time. We looked at columbines. We looked at mountain lilacs. We looked at a bee inside a, uh, a flower bud. We took our time. We looked very, very closely at nature. Hopkins is doing that here. He's looking very closely at, um, at, as a stone goes inside a well and hits the... Have you ever thrown a stone in a well and it hits the different sides of the well as it goes down and it rings? Tumbled over a rim and around the well, stones ring. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Everything on earth, everything in creation has, I don't know, a job to do, has a thing that it does, a thing that it is. And Hopkins is saying in this first stanza that these things that we see in the world, they just, they are what they are. They have what he called a thisness about them. Whatever they are is the thing that they are made to be, right? And there's a certain beauty in that in and of itself, just because a tree is gorgeous. Even a, a, an individual leaf or an individual snowflake um, has a beauty to it. If you look closely enough, you can be filled with wonder. What I do is me, for that I came. Okay, then he turns it. That's already kind of amazing, but then he turns it. I say more. That's actually not enough. It's not enough for everything to be filled with its own beingness. The just man Justices keeps grace. That keeps all his growing grace, his goings graces. Acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is. Dash that points to the next line. Christ. So what's he saying? Everything is not just itself, but it's also it's also what? What can you be to the world? You can be Christ. You're not just who you are. If you're a just man or woman, you keep grace, keep all your goings graces, you are acting in God's eye, what in God's eye you are. You're Christ to the world. Christ plays in 10,000 places. Christ is all around the world in everything. He imbues and gives life to everything. This is the Colossians language, right? By him, through him, for him, everything is created. Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in him, lovely in limbs. He's, he's in your body. He's in your limbs. Lovely in eyes, in your eyes. Eyes that are not Christ's, the, the Jew of 2,000 years ago, the Nazarite, but, um, or the Nazarene, but your eyes. Christ is in you. 
And the Father sees Christ when he looks at you. Lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, through the features of men's faces. So when God looks upon his created order and sees men and women keeping grace, being just in the world, living in the kingdom as Christ presented it to us, he sees Christ. I can't take a hike anymore or go snowboarding or do anything I love to do outside without thinking about this. You read this 20 or 30 times and the depth and the beauty and the power of it become more and more clear and it echoes in your brain. Um, Okay, I would love it if you guys would spend, let's see, it's 10, 13, let's spend about five minutes looking at Carrie and Comfort, which is, I think, the top poem um, uh, in front of you. And you want to join these guys? If you're by yourself, maybe join someone else. I'll give you some questions you can ask each other. Read the poem. Maybe choose one person at your table to read it out loud. This poem is the poem I would teach on the first day of my English classes because I'm an evil man. And it's hard to understand. And my students would think, oh, this is going to be the worst course ever. And it takes a while, in 45 minutes or so, and we're going to do it much faster than that. It can really come alive to you. Um, But uh, we'll speed all that up. So read through Carrying Comfort. Um, and ask yourself, who is speaking? Who is he talking to? Who's speaking? Who is he talking to? What's the mood? What mood is he in? What's the message? Who's speaking? Who is he talking to? What's the mood? What's the message? These are basic questions you would ask of just about any poem. And then most importantly, how do you know? Like, what's the language doing that kind of gives you clues uh, to the answers to those questions? So spend a few minutes reading it, Again, choose one person. You've got to hear it out loud. So choose one person to read it out loud. And then um, talk about it for a few moments. And then we'll come together. I just um, was talking to uh, this guy over here, William, um, about how reading the poetry was going. And he said what I was about to say. Which proves that, <clears throat> that, I, was, that I was right. Um, but he said it's kind of like reading a parable. This is exactly what I was going to say to you guys, that like Eugene Peterson, um, to echo his name a little bit more, talks about Jesus' parables as things that were sort of thrown down in front of people, like those, like those um, firecrackers that you throw down and shock people, that that's kind of what Jesus often intended for the parables, that they, they shock you, they startle you. I mean, the reason that often when you're reading the Gospels, you sometimes read a parable and think, what? What could that possibly mean? You know, you have eyes but don't see and ears but don't hear. Um, that, that the meaning, the significance of the parables was meant to sort of come on you slowly. Two or three days later, you would think, oh, that's what he's talking about. They're meant to require a different kind of hearing, a different kind of deep reflection, right? Where you read and reread, you reflect and reflect and reflect, and then the meaning kind of bubbles up, um, which is better than just being able to unwrap something and eat it and digest it. And it's over like that, right? A deeper kind of experience with something. And that's very similar to what Hopkins was up to. And in fact, a lot of our great, I mean, part of the reason literature matters and the reason so much of it is rich with Christian theology is that a lot of our great Christian writers, including Shakespeare, were looking to the Bible and how did it tell stories, right? And it often told stories in strange, slanted ways. That's certainly what Hopkins is up to. Okay, I'm going to read Carrying Comfort once, and then we'll talk about what you got from it. Not, I'll not carry in comfort, despair, not feast on thee. 
not untwist, slack they may be, these last strands of man and me, or most weary cry, I can no more. I can. Can something. Hope. Wish day come. Not choose not to be. But ah, but oh thou terrible, why wouldst thou root on me, thy ring world right foot rock? By the way, he makes up words all the time. So if there's words you don't understand, it's not because you don't have a good vocabulary. It's because he's made up the word. Lay a lion limb against me. Scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones. And fan, oh, in terms of tempest, me heap there. Me frantic to avoid thee and flee. Why? That my chaff might fly. My grain lie, sheer and clear. Nay, in all that toil, that coil, since seems I kiss the rod, hand rather, my heart low, lapsed strength, stole joy with laugh, cheer. Cheer whom, though? The hero whose heaven hamling flung me, foot trod me, or me that fought him? Oh, which one? Is it each one? That night, that year of now done darkness, I, wretch, lay wrestling with my God. My God. And the way that I read it is, is um, informed by uh, the way, it's not exactly what Hopkins would have intended, but he was very particular about the way he wanted things read. Um, and it sort of takes practice to pick it up, and I'm not there. I'm, I'm a C-level Hopkins student. Um, but in any event, you can hear when things are stressed in certain ways how the meaning twists a little bit or maybe gets foregrounded a little bit. Anyone want to explain what this poem is about or just take a shot at it? And the correct answer to that question is yes. Someone does want to try. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, he told, Joe told me that you would be the first one to speak. Give it a shot. Okay, so um, there's a lot going on here. It's, it's yeah. a complex word picture. He's actually having a conversation, I think, with himself and both his fallen nature and his um, uh, Christianized nature, okay. uh, where he's, he's going back and forth between uh, his sin has dragged him down. It's, it's rotting him from within. You know, the word carrion is a, um, a corpse of an animal that's, right. that's rotten. Yeah, that's important. The carrion... It's like what vultures feed on, right? right? It's dead flesh. Yeah, so it, he's dead. He's, he's a dead man. Um, but then he comes into the hope. Um, but then he goes right back to this war of his sin self versus his uh, redeemed self. Um, okay, actually, let's pause there for a second. That's very, very good. Let's, the, the carrion thing is very important. He is warring against his sin self. What does his sin self want to do? Want to do? wants to what? It wants to destroy, yes, his sin self wants to destroy him, but it wants to make him think that he's already destroyed. What comfort could there possibly be? What is carrion comfort? What comfort could there be in carrion? Like, what does that even mean? Any ideas? I will not feast, and he's addressing despair in this first line. I won't feast on you. What does that mean? Won't take part of it? Is that what you said? Who said that? Yes. Won't take part of what, though? Like, what, what's the image? Feasting on your own dead flesh. 
is tantamount to embracing despair, again, hopelessness, choosing hell, suicide, is one of the things he's contemplating. I won't do this. I won't, this is how, this is how we know. I won't untwist, slack they may be, these last strands of man in me. I won't untwist the, the knots of life, the strings of life that are all, t- the coil. Shuffle off life's coil, that's a, a line from Shakespeare. Life's mortal coil. Um, and he's, he's alluding to that line. He also alludes to Shakespeare in the fourth line. Can something hope, wish day come, not choose not to be? Anyone catch that reference? Not choose not to be? What'd you say? To be or not to be? Which is a famous um, scene in Hamlet where Hamlet contemplates suicide in front of the audience. To be or not to be, that is the question. And it's, it's a soliloquy about, again, contemplating suicide. He's saying, I won't choose not to be. I can do something. I can, I can something. I can't even name it yet. But I can hope. I cannot choose to end it all. Again, very kind of dark stuff that he's, that he's wrestling with. Um, so initially he's addressing despair, and then he begins to address someone different in the second four lines. But ah, oh thou terrible. He's realizing that he's struggling against a mighty, mighty force. And this poem, in part is about him discovering what that force is. Anyone, I mean, what's the big discovery that he makes? This, this poem has kind of a surprise at the end. He's discovered that I'm wrestling, what? That I'm wrestling with God. I'm not just wrestling with myself. This isn't just darkness. This isn't just guilt. This isn't just despair. That year of now done darkness, I was Jacob. I was wrestling with God. And I may be wounded now, just as Jacob was. It is Jacob, right? I'm getting that story right now, right? Yeah. I may be wounded now. I may come away with a limp. But there's something glorious about the fact that I wasn't just wrestling with myself, that it wasn't just darkness and despair. I, wretch, lay wrestling with. And then this, like, parenthetical expletive, it's like saying, holy crap, I wrestled, my God, with my God. And in realizing that, he's embracing his salvation. Someone is with me in this. And he is God. Okay, I'm going to close this in prayer by reading probably the most famous Hopkins poem, God's Grandeur. This is a poem that is one of the simplest ones to understand. Um, it still has layers and layers and layers to it. And, in, and all these do. I mean, every line of carrying comfort we could go through and spend uh, 20 minutes on and, and you would see what he's... I mean, he's often making allusions to other poems or plays or he's making allusions to things in the news of his day and it all adds up together to being this kind of masterwork. And the same is true of God's grandeur. But it also, God's grandeur makes sense at kind of a more literal and basic level. Um, and I love this poem because it's a great Colorado poem. Hopkins loved the outdoors. He often hiked the hills uh, around the school where he taught, and that he saw kingfishers and dragonflies, and he saw God in all these things. And this is what he's seeing here. And I'll just say as a preface that he is, he is saying, I see God all in the world. Man is trying to destroy the world. This is a very environmentalist poem. All this toil, this trade, 
um, you know, trading uh, goods back and forth in the industry. I mean, he's living in the industrial area era as it's on its rise, so he's seeing pollution, all these things for the first time, and he's worried about it. But still, God renews the world. The Holy Spirit constantly is renewing this earth. Um, and when he says the world is charged with God, he both means that the world is filled with God, like the way a battery is charged with power. The world is charged with God. It's also charged in the sense of having a duty. If you're charged with something, you're commanded to do something. So both those things are happening in this poem. I'll read it. I'll um, say a word of prayer, and then Joe will come up. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness, like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. If only we didn't wear shoes is basically what he's saying. We want to be connected to God's creation. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning, as the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breasts and with, ah, bright wings. Almighty God, we acknowledge that your world is charged with you, that it's filled with you, that you imbue it and fill it, and we're grateful for that. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see you in all things and to draw us close to you as we live um, in your creation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.